Before we begin, let us pray. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, quite a few of you submitted questions this week, some really fantastic ones. And of course, I'm afraid we won't have time to get to all of those today. But I tried to select a good balance of personal, professional, and theological questions. So we'll get right into it with a pretty heavy one. I'll read the question, then I'll answer as best I can. Every week in church, we pray for the forgiveness of our sins. And yet, many horrible deaths and disasters happen in our world and in our own lives that sometimes make us feel angry at God. Is it even appropriate to discuss forgiveness in the context of forgiving God? Does God even care if we forgive her? The first thing we have to address here, I think, is the question about being angry at God. Is it okay to be angry at God? Well, on the one hand, you could argue that that's a little silly because, you know... Um, we wouldn't be here without God, right? Yes, we have all the suffering and hardship, but all the good things we have also come from God. I'm reminded of a, a situation about a year ago in India where uh, a man attempted to sue his parents for giving birth to him without his permission, um, claiming that you know they had no right to bring him into this hard and difficult life uh, full of hardship and suffering. So on, some, on one hand, you know, being angry at God is a little like that. On the other hand, really, I absolutely think we, we, we can be angry at God, and it's only natural to be angry at God. Even if we don't believe, and I don't believe, that, that God um, makes uh, bad things happen to me or to anyone else, even I don't believe that God uh, hurts us or punishes us in that way, or maybe even at all, um, or that God, uh, you know, makes bad things happen to people. We can still be angry about the state of the world, about being part of a creation in which sickness and violence and death and suffering are really built into the system. Um, I, I think that's fair to be angry about that. And if we're angry about it, then we come to the question of forgiveness. Is, is it, the question was, is it appropriate to discuss forgiveness in the context of us forgiving God? Uh, there was a, a book that was uh, written many years ago uh, called The Trial of God by Eli Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor. And uh, in this book, these, these people decide to put God on trial. And this, this book was supposedly based on a real occurrence in Auschwitz where, where these, these rabbis who were uh, imprisoned there one night uh, decided to put God on trial. And uh, the young Wiesel, the author, uh, supposedly witnessed this as a teenager. And after lengthy uh, debate and discussion, uh, these rabbis concluded that God was guilty uh, for crimes against humanity. But then upon determining the verdict, one of them looked uh, up at the sky and said, it's time for evening prayers. 
and they proceeded with their evening prayer service. To me, that was a, a recognition of uh, the pain of our lives and the anger we feel at God, but also a forgiveness. Uh, because really, what it's all about with God is relationship. God forgives us, we forgive God, and we are able to continue to participate in loving relationship together. Next question. What is your most challenging role as a pastor? How can we support you? Uh, I would say that the most challenging thing uh, as a pastor, especially uh, in the current climate we live in, is uh, being called to take a moral stance on issues without taking a political or partisan stance on issues. Um, obviously, we live in a very um, divided society, a uh, very hyper-partisan society, where uh, increasingly, over the last several years, it feels as though every issue, every moral issue of any kind, <laughs> is uh, sort of co-opted by the left or the right or both, and to take a moral stance is therefore to align yourself with a political party, which the church is, of course, um, that's, not our, that's not what we're called to do. That's not our business, is to take sides in politics. But it is our business to, to make, moral, make a moral stance and to call out injustice and to preach what we believe is the kingdom of God. So that is a narrow tightrope that sometimes feels like it is growing narrower by the day. I think the debate about uh, masks has really um, crystallized the, um, the way in which really nothing is, uh, nothing is safe from this kind of hyper-partisanship. Um, so in order to do that, you know, our approach most of the time is to uh, try to keep it rooted in our faith and in the Bible and regardless of what's being said on CNN or Fox News, to, to preach what we believe Jesus uh, would say and in Jesus' words. Um, as far as how uh, you all can support me, uh, you can support uh, me and the other leaders of the church, uh, I think, by giving us the benefit of the doubt and practicing grace when we get it wrong, um, should we miss the mark, uh, which we will and we do sometimes. And... Uh, to forgive us for that. Also, I would just say, um, in terms of support, I find this congregation very supportive in so many ways. Um, you know, I, my birthday and work anniversary last week was just a tremendous response from people, and that's just one example of the ways in which this congregation really is gracious uh, to its clergy and to its staff, and uh, really does uh, practice appreciation and gratitude and forgiveness in so many ways. Uh, so I thank you for that. Question number three. This is another theological question. It seems that Paul focuses mostly on the death and supernatural resurrection of Jesus and his interpretation of its importance to us while neglecting much of the gospel teachings of Jesus. Why do you think this is, and do you think the Gospels, written after Paul's letters, were a corrective response to Paul's efforts, i.e. setting the record straight on what's really important? While I cannot speak to the intent of the Gospel writers, 
and whether they saw their work as a corrective uh, to Paul, I do think they certainly fill in a lot of gaps um, in, in Paul's writings. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm not criticizing Paul for leaving those gaps because his writings are letters, right? They're not gospels. They're a different genre of literature. He's not trying to lay out all of the stories. Supposedly, he's already done that in person in these communities or in other writings. Um, he's assuming they already know this, whereas the gospel writers are really trying to tell the story of Jesus. So it's not by any fault of Paul's that those stories aren't in there. But they're not in there. Right? So there's a lot missing in terms of um, uh, Jesus' life and experience and teachings. And the Gospels certainly bring us that. Um, I've often said that I believe there are, really to break it down in an, in an oversimple sort of way, two kinds of Christians. Those who care about how Jesus lived and those who care about how he died. Um, and those are both questions of salvation. In uh, theological circles, we call that soteriology, which is the, the, the study of salvation. Um, the, the, uh, the idea that Jesus atoned for our sins and that his blood saved us and that we get to go to heaven if we believe in Jesus, that's one kind of soteriology, one salvation narrative. Um, and the other kind of salvation narrative is that um, we, because, because uh, Jesus has forgiven us um, and, and because God loves us, we are called to, to act accordingly and build God's kingdom on earth. And it's really more about how, we, how Jesus lived his life, how we live our lives following that example, um, how we practice love with each other, how we build up the kingdom. And in that salvation narrative, it's really less about going to heaven, although that's a part of it, um, and more about finding salvation here in this life. Uh, because we believe, and I believe, that when we follow the teachings of Jesus, our lives are better. We are happier people. We are less self-centered. We are less greedy. We are less toxic. We exert more energy caring about other people. Um, and I think that makes us happier people. And, and we can find salvation from a lot of the, the things that would imprison us in this life. Um, and that's not mutually exclusive with salvation in, in heaven or in the afterlife. Um, that comes too, I believe. Uh, but it's not only about that. It's also about the here and now. So I do think it's important uh, to care about not only how Jesus died, but how he lived, which I would also just add um, is why he died the way he did. Um, it, it was not a random or isolated occurrence. I don't believe he even came here to die in that way specifically, but rather it was a consequence of his living out the gospel uh, in a world that could not understand or tolerate that. And sadly, in many ways, that's still the world we live in today, but we are nonetheless called uh, to build God's kingdom here. On a lighter note, if there was ever a movie about your life, who would you want to play you? Now, I had to include this question because I actually just had this conversation with some friends of mine. Um, back in Connecticut, we were having a, a text conversation 
the subject of Keanu Reeves had come up. And um, someone had pointed out, you know, Keanu Reeves is sort of like the, uh, the platonic ideal uh, of Seth. You know, he's sort of the more handsome, more attractive, cooler version of Seth. Um, which, of course, you know, could also be read as I am the less attractive, less handsome, less cool version of Keanu Reeves, uh, which actually led one of them to refer to me as uh, Kmart Keanu, um, sort of the, the cheap knockoff brand of Keanu Reeves, if you will. Uh, so I, I'm not sure how to take that, if that's a, uh, that's a compliment or an insult, but uh, I think there's probably some truth to it, so I'm going to go with good old, good old Keanu. Number five, how do you recommend reading the Bible? Start at the beginning and work your way to the end, or start with the Psalms. Are there Bible study strategies that can be used and followed? So if you read the Bible from beginning to end, it, it actually tells a really amazing and fantastic story. There's a, there's a really epic, um, remarkable narrative arc that carries through the whole series of scriptures. That said, it is a series of scriptures. Um, in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of books. It's not a single book. Um, and my advice for anyone trying to read the Bible cover to cover uh, would be, don't be afraid to skip ahead. <laughs> because I think what happens oftentimes when folks try to do this, it's happened to me, um, you hit one of these really boring parts. You know, when I say boring, I, I mean, you know, things like genealogies, um, even the Psalms, after you've read a few dozen of them, uh, <laughs> you know, by the time you get up, you've read a hundred Psalms, you kind of feel like, you know, you've read them all. And um, they're, they're actually very powerful to read in, um, in isolation or, or in, in small groups, but to read them all together begins to get very repetitive. Similarly, uh, the books of the prophets can get very repetitive as they're, you know, uh, raging on and on and on about punishments in this city and that city and this person and that person. Um, so don't be afraid if you feel like it's beginning to drag to kind of skip ahead a little bit. Um, there are other parts, too, that are just, frankly, um, repeats or recaps. You know, like there's like a, sometimes you watch a TV show and there'll be an episode that's just a recap of all the other episodes before. You don't really need to watch it if you've already seen them. And that's sort of what the Chronicles are, you know, in, um, <laughs> in the Bible. It sort of recaps everything that was happening in Samuel and Kings. Um, so uh, there, there are parts it's okay to kind of skip ahead. Um, you won't be missing a whole lot. Um, but you will be missing a lot if you don't read it at all because there's so much fantastic stuff in there. And like I said, there really is a great arc. As far as reading individual passages, um, there are various strategies uh, for Bible study that you can employ. One of the most well-known is the Lectio Divina, uh, the divine uh, reading, uh, where you read a passage three times. First, you uh, uh, listen for a, a word um, that jumps out at you, um, and then you listen for, for the intention of the text, you know, what is it trying to tell you, and then what is the call? What is it calling you to do? There are various, um, 
variations of that, various uh, ways to do that that are slightly different. Uh, another way I like to look at it, uh, particularly in preaching, is, is what does this text say, of, say or tell us about God? What does it tell us about human nature uh, and our understanding of God? And what does it tell us about the relationship between us and God? Because really, I think that's what the narrative arc of the Bible is. It's a story, writ large, about humanity's relationship with God. Um, when, when Jacob uh, wrestles with the angel at the river Peniel, and um, he's given a new name, Israel, it says, you know, I shall name you Israel because you have struggled with God. And that's really what, what the Bible is. It's a record of our human struggle with God and struggle to be in relationship with God and to be God's people and all of the ups and downs and promises and broken promises and, uh, and the forgiveness, again, that comes with all of those in maintaining that relationship. Next question. How can we explain to people in and out of our faith that we should care about each other? Um, and again, I believe in the context that this was sent, um, based on the email, uh, this was specifically in regards, to, again, to the question of masks. And, you know, um, how, do we, how do we convince people or explain to people to uh, care about each other, that this is for the, for the greater good? I would argue that you can't uh, convince people or explain to people uh, why it's important to care about each other. Um, but I think you can show them. And I think you can care, you can show them by caring for them. Um, you know, human psychology, uh, what we know about it, tells us that uh, people are resistant to um, facts in some ways, uh, or to things being explained to them when it's, in, when it's contrary to a deeply held uh, conviction or belief. And we always think that we can, you know, change somebody's mind if we could just explain it the right way, or if we could just get them to read this article or watch that video clip or, um, you know, really think about it, that we, we can change their mind. And time and again, um, it's shown that that doesn't really work that way. Um, one of the great examples, um, we, uh, we watched a, a video here in church many, probably 10 years ago. Uh, it was a documentary called, uh, For the Bible Tells Me So. And it was about um, parents of uh, gay and lesbian children. And uh, what you saw in that documentary, and I think is very true, is uh, people who have a more homophobic stance will not change their mind because you, you try to justify it biblically or because you uh, explain it in any way, but it's when it's, when it's their own son or their own daughter um, that, is, that is gay or lesbian. That changes their Sometimes it changes their feelings. Sometimes it does not, sadly. But, but if anything will, that will. Um, and, and it's, so it's personal experience. And I think there was a beautiful example of this recently in, uh, in all the protests that have been happening. There was that story uh, about um, there, were, there were black protesters and uh, counter protesters who were, you know, um, against, uh, who were really taking a more kind of racist stance. And one of these white guys, you know, was, was trampled by the crowds or whatever. And a, and a black man, his the Samaritan, his enemy, whatever you want to call it, picked him up and carried him to safety. I imagine that experience changed the man who had fallen's heart 
much more than any protests or explanation uh, could ever do. Um, so I think we can demonstrate our love for each other. Uh, and that's the only way uh, to change someone's heart. What would you be doing if you weren't a pastor? Well, I, uh, I took a uh, personality test recently, uh, Myers-Briggs, probably familiar with it. And uh, my, my Myers-Briggs personality type is an INFP, uh, which is a very sort of uh, intuitive, imaginative um, uh, feeling kind of, kind of person. Um, very creative, big imagination, not a lot of practical skills. Um, and uh, the particular um, personality test that I took uh, gave, gave me a few examples, actually, of things that uh, I was suited for. And the three examples it gave were failed artist, the town mooch, and going to construction sites and stealing copper wiring. So... Uh, <laughs> uh, I like to believe that I possess a very unique set of skills um, that uh, serve me well as a pastor, but I, I, I'm not sure they would serve me well anywhere else. Um, so thank you for having me. And uh, final question today. Uh, when are we going back to church and having in-person services again? So this is uh, something we're obviously thinking about every day. Uh, we've got a resurrection task force uh, working on this very question. And um, truthfully, it's going to be a while. Uh, it's going to be a while because when we uh, really consider what that would look like or what that would mean or how we would do it safely, um, the experience that I think people would have at church is not a good one. Um, you know, you would be having your temperature checked at the door. You'd, you'd have to walk along a dotted line, essentially, to get to the sanctuary. You'd, uh, we'd only be able to seat, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50 people. Um, you'd have to stay in your seat. You'd not be able to leave to use the bathroom during the service. Um, there would be no singing. Uh, they, you know, they say even that preaching is as bad as singing as far as projecting uh, particles um, out. Uh, they say that uh, a preacher ought to be 15 feet you know, in front of the person. And, you know, of course, my preaching is so powerful, but it's, it's probably more like 30 feet. Um, so it's just not safe. Um, uh, you know, you, you know, there's no coffee. You, you know, there's no receiving line. You can't really talk to each other that well. you got to wear masks. So when you put it all together, it really creates a, a kind of an unpleasant environment and experience. And I personally believe that uh, what we're doing online probably offers a much... Uh, much better experience for you all who are participating in worship. So until we're able to gather in greater numbers, um, uh, I don't think we're going to be worshiping in person. We are exploring uh, possibilities of uh, groups of 10 or fewer people in the near future uh, for small groups or things like that or meetings. Um, that's not decided yet, but it's something we're thinking about. Um, but in the meantime, I invite you to participate in all of the various offerings uh, that we have online, the Fireside Chats, the Musical Mondays, the Storytelling Tuesdays, the Friday Surprise, uh, the Bible Study, all that good stuff. Um, 
And uh, again, I believe your, your experience online will be better. If for no other reason, then you can fast forward through the sermons. So <laughs> I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I hope I've been able to respond to these queries sufficiently. Uh, and by all means, continue to send them my way. Continue to uh, shoot me an email or give me a call if you ever have a question. Um, those conversations uh, are really actually the best part of being a pastor. So thank you and amen. <laughs>